So we continue our series this morning and looking at the Gospel of Matthew. And we have been, we've been looking uh, most recently at Matthew chapter 10. And Matthew chapter 10 is sort of a discipleship manual of sorts where Jesus is he's giving a, a lot of different instructions to his disciples. He's commissioned 12 at the beginning of chapter 10 and he's, and he's sent them out. And we come to a place now starting in verse 26 where there's a, there's a fresh set of uh, instructions. And um, you know, one, of the way, <laughs> one of the experiences that, that my, my wife and I have is that it's, there's, there's a rare night that goes by where one of our kids doesn't come to our bed. I mean, having, I don't know how many we have, six or something like that, they, <laughs> which, okay, I would be remiss at this juncture to not share something with you. As you know, every time I take a preaching sabbatical, my wife is with child. I didn't preach for like three weeks in January. She's pregnant. And she's pregnant with twins. <laughs> so my bed's really going to be occupied for the next, I don't know, 20 years or something <laughs> crazy like that. And um, last night was no different. I don't, know, I don't know which ones were in there. But there were, at one point or another, there was kids in the bed. And the, as parents, you know, what, what, is, what is the number one thing that they say? I'm scared. I'm afraid. And I'm, I'm a pretty horrible father at about 2.30 in the morning. Um, my, my answer is to generally just to try to, to try to squeeze out some kind of prayer over them and, and give this advice that is probably absolutely worthless advice, but there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> and at 2.30 in the morning to a child that's walking through a dark house to tell them there's nothing to be afraid of and for their father to roll over and go back to sleep probably isn't all that encouraging, but that's, that's what they get. And this text this morning, I say all that for, as an introduction, because this text this morning is specifically dealing with fears. And at least three different times in this text that we have this morning, Jesus tells his disciples to not be afraid. He says, fear not, fear not. Or not. And it's a reality that we are a scared and timid people. I'm so grateful that Joel introduced the song that he did because it's, it, speaks to a, it speaks to a heartstring, it speaks to a reality that we all experience. You know, it's one scholar, New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright, and he pointed out that, that, the, that the command, do not fear, is the number one command that occurs in all of the scriptures. That's the number one thing in, in talking about addressing a, an emotion, addressing a human experience, is to not be afraid. Don't be afraid. And it, one spot that I think is particularly striking is at the beginning of, of, of the book of Joshua. And at the beginning of the book of Joshua, if there was, if there was ever a man that was courageous, it was Joshua. He here is, is Moses' right-hand man of sorts. He's the one who leads God's people. Thank you, dear. He's the one that leads God's people into the promised land. And yet four times in just Joshua chapter 1, it says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Because even the, one of the most brave men that ever walked the earth, one of the men that had the greatest of faith, was afraid. 
And he needed to be told by God to be strong and courageous because the scriptures are always speaking to our weakness. The scriptures are always speaking and they're commanding to our weakness. So we're going to look at the title of the sermon today. Children, if you're, if you're taking notes, which I encourage you to do, the title of the sermon is called Fearless Discipleship. Fearless Discipleship. And I'll unpack the sermon under three points. One is called Environment. The second is called Fears. And the third point is called Devotion. Environment, Fears, Devotion. And we're going to try something else this morning, kids. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a key word. And to help you kind of pay attention, I want you to, on your notes, I want you to make a tally mark every time you hear me say the word fear. Every time you hear me say the word fear, put a tally mark in your notes, and then come up to me after the service and tell me how many times I use that word. I have no idea how many times I'm going to use it, okay? Fear, fear, fear. Let me read to us our text this morning, and then we'll get into it. This is Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 39. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would bless the reading and the hearing of your word. Father, we pray that fire would come down from heaven and would rest on each of us. Father, it, it feels like sermon preparation and thinking is like laying sticks together. But unless you bring fire from heaven, then it will never ignite. So we're utterly dependent on you. We're utterly dependent on you to cast out our fears. We ask, Father, for your help. I ask that you'd help me. We pray that Jesus would be glorified and magnified. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So point one, the environment. The environment. You know, uh, verse, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start at verse 34 and address that, and then we're going to come up and deal with 26 through 33. 
as fear, but I'm gonna do it a little out of order. So verse 34 is a little, it should be striking to us, right? Where, where Jesus tells us, he says, do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. <laughs> that should, we, should, we should read that and think, what in the world is he talking about? Isn't this, isn't this the Jesus who, who at his birth was, procl- in, in Isaiah, and at his birth was proclaimed to be the Prince of Peace? Didn't, didn't he tell us in John's gospel that he came to bring us life and to bring it abundantly? Didn't he tell us that my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you? But here he says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. Even back in verse 13, in this same section, it says, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. He's telling the disciples that part of their mission, part of their ministry is to bring peace to people. And yet Jesus is telling us here that he didn't come in some sense to, to, to bring peace, but in some sense he came to bring a sword. What's this business with the sword? Because we know, for example, when, when, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the armed guards come to arrest him. We, we know, and we, if you, re, you remember that Peter rises up with his own sword and he takes out his sword and he cuts off the, the soldier's ear. And, and, and Jesus renounces that kind of behavior. He says, that's, that, that's not the way of my disciples. My, 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 it should not be that way. Put your sword away, Peter. And he actually picks up this person's ear and he heals him on the spot. So what does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean clearly here stored in the sense of some kind of military exercise. What he must mean, what he must mean is he's talking about some kind of social divide. He's talking about the sword as a kind of social divide. He's talking about a lack of peace in some kind of social setting. He's not talking about that inner kind of peace that he promises elsewhere, that inner kind of life by faith that he offers us, that living water kind of peace that abides with us, that kind of peace that we read in Psalm 23, that even though we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because he's with us. There's two different kinds of pieces that are dealt with here. And this kind of peace is talking about some kind of social divide. I think he's challenging his disciples and he's challenging us that our discipleship is a discipleship with our eyes wide open. It's discipleship with our eyes wide open and realizing the kind of cultural milieu that we find ourselves in, the kind of cultural milieu that the disciples found themselves in 2,000 years ago and the kind of cultural situation that we find ourselves in here in 2018 in, in, in the Portland, Vancouver, greater area. It's a kind of cultural milieu that we find ourselves in that's, that, that, that is radically against the things of God, that radically hates some of the virtues and the teachings and the truth claims of Christianity. Sure, there's things that Jesus teaches that the world likes, loving your neighbor and so on. But when the Bible and the truth claims of Christianity deal with our own autonomy, they deal with our own gender identity, they deal with sexual ethics. The world absolutely hates Christianity and God and the Bible and the things of Jesus. So there's things in every culture that will be, that will be 
accepting and, and cozy up to the things of Jesus. But in every culture, there will be things that rub hard, rub really hard against the culture that we find ourselves in. And the challenge of the Christian, the challenge of us as a local church, the challenge of us as disciples is to find that line, to be faithful and obedient to Jesus and realize that that's going to bring a sword to our social relationships at times. It's going to be a dividing line to us at certain times. It's going to be a division to us at certain times. But the way of the Christian life can't actually be a help to people unless there is a hard edge to it. It can't actually be a service to people if all we've ever done is created God in our own image. If God always agrees with everything that I already think, he's not a God that can actually help us. And he's not the God of the Bible, that's for sure. He's not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the environment, the environment that Christians find themselves in is an environment that inevitably is an environment of bringing a sword. And as a challenge to us, if your life is not marked by some kind of sword, some kind of dividing, some kind of social division, then we should ask ourselves, are we living the faithful, obedient Christian lifestyle? If there isn't some aspect of your life that is offensive to your neighbors, that is an offensive to your coworkers, then maybe we're missing the imperatives of, of this text. Because the imperatives of this text are telling us to proclaim the things that we've heard in secret and to proclaim them in the light, to proclaim them on rooftops. And that kind of proclamation inevitably brings a sword. Now the challenge, of course, as we've said before, as, as, as preachers better than I have said, we better make sure that people don't like us for the right reasons. Better not make sure it's just because we're, 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 we're arrogant or we, we, we speak these kinds of things in a, in, a, in, a, in a pejorative kind of way. But Christians are the ones that are the most loving on the planet because they've received the free love and grace of Jesus Christ simply by his sheer love and mercy for us. The world did not know what to do with the earliest Christians, the early church. They did not know what to think of these people. They did not know what to think of these people. These were the kinds of people that loved their neighbor to a sacrificial kind of sense. As, as plagues and famines were, were, were running rampant through the early Roman world, it was the Christians that stayed and cared for their neighbors at the cost of even contracting these illnesses and diseases themselves. They had no idea what to do with this radical kind of love and this radical kind of self-giving kind of love that these people had, that these Christians had for the world around them. And they didn't know at the same time what to do with these radical truth claims. They're living in this environment that says Caesar is Lord. And the most radical claim of the early church was to say, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. That was the earliest dogma of the Christian church, that Jesus is Lord. And that flew so radically in the face of the Roman world. And here Jesus gives us Probably one of the best illustrations for us to understand this kind of sword, this kind of division, he gives us the illustration of the family. Because the family is probably the most intimate of all relationships. Father to son. Husband to wife. What does he give? Son, daughter, father, mother. Mother-in-law, daughter-in-law, eh, a little bit more understandable. Not my mother-in-law, of course. But it's the most intimate of relationships that he gives to us here. Even Jesus' own siblings 
We know that Jesus' older brother James, his own siblings, thought that he was, he was he's out of his mind, that he'd lost his noodle, lost his marbles, that he had a Messiah complex. <laughs> I actually wrote that one down. <laughs> But we know that James is the one that goes on and probably the earliest New Testament writing is the book of James. It's probably the earliest epistle that we have and it's Jesus' own older brother and he's recapitulating for us the teachings of his younger brother who ultimately was brought around to see that his brother really was the son of God who really was everything that he claimed to be as radical, as in your face, as, as crazy as it seemed. But I think there's another deeper principle for us here before I move on from this point. And that is that oftentimes it's the contentious environments that create a deeper faith. It's the contentious environments that create in us a deeper faith. Look, as, as a very simple illustration. Um, as we continue as a society to grow and, and become a, a, a post-Christian culture, and by that, all I simply mean is that, that the values that the world holds are no longer the values of Judeo-Christian morality. That's pretty obvious. That's all I mean by post-Christian. As we've entered more into that, especially just in the last couple of years, even since Obergefell v. Hodges, since then, the dividing line of nominal Christianity has grown wider and wider, it is a lot harder to just be a, uh, a Sunday Christian in this cultural environment than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. I mean, it costs us something socially to, to bear the name of the Lord Jesus. And what that does, that contentious environment, it makes it a lot easier to say what is and what isn't true in authentic Christianity. It caused people, people don't those, it's not, it's not, I remember one time, um, a friend of Vanessa and I, uh, from, from college, uh, his brother-in-law came to town, and, and he shared with us that he, I think I said this before, that he changes churches about every 12 to 24 months, because he needs, he needs to make sure that he's, he's expanding his, his, uh, his social network, that he needs to make sure that the, that the business contacts that he, that he needs are, are, are expanding and growing, and, and once he's been in one church for, you know, 12 to 18, 24 months, it's time to move on to the next one. Okay, that's, that, that is a, that's a social reason for, for being a Christian, right? And when you live in the kind of cultural milieu that we do today, it's just a lot harder to do that. There's, there's very little reason to do that. And that's a good thing for the testimony of the church. And our own faith in these kinds of contentious environments. So as much as we bemoan the world around us and we bemoan the, the situation that we find ourselves in and the sexual confusion and the, and the moral relativism and so on and so on, it is creating in us, this contentious environment is creating in us a deeper kind of faith. So that's the first point. That's the first point. Environment that disciples find themselves in. And the contentious environment creates in us a deeper kind of faith. Well, the second point, point two, is fear. Fear. As I said already, the most frequent command in all of the scriptures, and this is not hyperbolic, is to not be afraid. To not be afraid. Which means that it's likely that every single one of us in this room at one point or another 
different degrees or another, struggles with fear. Fear of the future, fear of reputation, fear of health, fear of finances, fear of man. That's probably a big one for me. Fear of man, what will other people think? Will people approve of me to the degree that I, that I want them to? Or will I need to make a hard decision, whether with my wife, my kids, the church, the elders, my friends, whoever? People won't be happy with me. So there's this constant fear going on. This fear of finances, this fear of, of am I, am I, are we providing enough for our children? Are we giving them the, 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 the future that we, that we long to? Fear of acceptance. Do people accept me? Do people like me? Do people want to be around me? We ought not underestimate the power of fear. It's a pervasive and a controlling influence in our lives. Let's just walk through it real fast, verses 26 to 31, just to teach it really quick, and then I'll apply it to us. The first command in the text in verse 26 is, have no fear. That's an imperative. (laughs) Striking to us. It's striking to me. I have not totally wrapped my mind around this yet. But some of the deepest um, debilitating emotions that I experience in my own life, the Bible and Jesus seems to speak to in an imperative kind of nature. He says, don't be anxious. I struggle with anxiety. I struggle with my stomach getting into knots and so on. And, and the command of Jesus is, don't be anxious. <laughs> it's like me at 2.30 in the morning telling the kids, there's nothing to be afraid of. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? Because Jesus gives to us the commands, and then he gives us five reasons. He gives us five reasons just in verses 26 to 31. So the second command is to speak in the light, to proclaim on the housetops. The third command, again in verse 28, is don't fear. The fourth command is to fear God. The fourth command of the text in verse 29 is to fear God, not man. And the fifth command, there's five commands in just these five verses, is again, fear not. So the point of those verses is three times fear not, instead fear God, speak in the light and proclaim on the housetops. Jesus' aim here is to overcome the fear in the lives of his disciples, to overcome the fear in your life and my life, and to instill courage. To instill courage And very specifically in this text, I'm going to apply it broader to us, but very specifically in this text, it's courage to do what? It's courage to speak. It's courage to proclaim on the rooftops. It's courage to speak in the light. And it's the courage to do that in that kind of cultural milieu, that kind of environment that we talked about in point one. It's the courage to be just radically honest about who Jesus is and what he means to you. You know, evangelism... This is not for me. This is what Tim Keller has said. But evangelism is, is really pretty simple, according to Keller. And he's made like thousands of disciples. I've made like one. Um, I'm just kidding. But Keller says that evangelism is really quite simple. He says, just make friends with people. Just make friends with people in your, in your spheres of influence, your coworkers, your family members, your neighbors, 
any affinity groups that you might have. Just make friends with people. That's what, that's what, that's what, that's what the shrewd manager is commended for, right, in Luke's gospel. I, I said a couple weeks ago that he made friends. He made friends with people. And then the second point is just be honest about how important Jesus is to you. Just be honest. If you would naturally talk about Jesus in a way that you would with a Christian, just naturally talk about Jesus that way with, with, with a friend. If it's Jesus that helps you get through a, a trial, a circumstance, a loss, a pain, just be honest about it. If it's Jesus that gives you a, the hope to get up in the morning, then just be honest about it. If it's Jesus that, that's the reason that you're not totally anxious about the world around us, you're not totally anxious about finances, you're not totally anxious about your kids, if it's the reason that you raise their kids the way you do, if it's the reason you live your life the way you do, just be honest about it. Talk about the Lord Jesus the way that if he is the highest treasure in your heart, the way that you just would naturally talk about him. And I'm not very good at this. I'm preaching to myself here. I want to cultivate that. I want to cultivate that ability to just be honest with people about how Jesus is to me. We're talking, Vanessa and I were talking about our neighbors. We've lived in the same house for six years now. And sometimes you just get this sense of guilt, right? Like you haven't been as honest with your neighbors as you think you should be. So now you almost feel like six years in, if you started talking about it, they'd be like, wait a minute. What is she talking about? Just overcoming that kind of fear and having the kind of courage to just tell my neighbors, tell my friends that are around me how important Jesus really is to me. And that's what Jesus' point here. He knows that we're afraid. He tells us to not be afraid three different times. He knows that's our experience. He knows that's our hindrance in evangelism. He knows we're afraid. What will people think about us? What, kind of, what if I don't say it right? I don't have the right words to communicate here. I feel like I'm just kind of jamming a, a square peg into a round hole in this conversation where we're kind of talking about Blazers basketball and all of a sudden I'm like, Jesus! <laughs> That's how I feel. <laughs> so he gives us five reasons to not be afraid. This is going to be the biggest point. And I'm going to just unpack the five reasons that Jesus gives us not be afraid. Because he doesn't just say, don't be afraid, and walks away from it. He doesn't just say, don't be anxious. He tells us to not be anxious, and he tells us to consider the lilies of the field. He tells us to not be afraid, and he gives us five reasons. Reason number one, it's actually in the previous verse. If they called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? And we know that that verse 26 is tied to verse 25 because of the word so. The word so... In verse 26 is the answer. It's the imperative. And the reason is because of verse 25. Because if they call the master of the house Beelzebub, the devil, how much more will they malign you? And I guess <laughs> the knee-jerk reaction is to say, well, they call the master of the house Beelzebub. And our answer should be like, yeah, that's why I'm afraid. <laughs> right? Like, that's what they did to Jesus. He's a perfect man. Like he was the most gracious, loving, wise, smart person, loving, caring, that ever, courageous, that ever walked in the face of the earth, and they called him the devil. Great. What does that mean for us? But to, to Jesus, it's a reason to not be afraid. Why? I think it's pretty simple. And I think it's simply reason number one to not be afraid is that we are in good company. 
We're in good company. We're in the house. If they called the master of the household this, certainly they'll malign you. Therefore, do not be afraid. It means that we're in his household with him. It means that he's identified himself with us. It means that we belong to him. It means that if we're maligned for his sake, it means that we've been engrafted and joined to him. If they mistreat us for speaking the truth clearly and openly, and there's not some unexpected, accidental, random, meaningless reason, Jesus is saying it's a sign that you belong to me. You're in my household. You're part of my family. Don't be afraid of the names that they'll call you. Because those very names that they call you, those very things that they say to you, bind us together. They bind us together. That's the reason number one. Reason number two, that we should not be afraid. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The reason... Second reason that we shouldn't be afraid is that we're going to be vindicated. We're going to be vindicated. Next time we're scared to, we're afraid, we have fear in our lives, think of it this way. Imagine how everything is going to play out. Imagine how everything is going to play out. Chris read to us Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 32 this morning. Everything. Every single last minuscule detail of your lives is working together for your good. And there will come a day when everything will be brought to light. When the truth of what we've been speaking and the reality of the way that we've been living our lives will come to absolute crystal clear light. Habakkuk tells us that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord like the waters cover the sea. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everybody at one point in their lives, at the end of history, at the consummation of all things, will see things 100% and absolutely clearly. Everything. Nothing will be uncovered. Nothing will be hidden. Everything will come to light. The reality of who Jesus Christ is is just a mere glimmer in our own lives, in our own heart, and our own minds right now. As great as he is, as the highest treasure of our heart that he is right now, it's just a mere shadow of what it'll be in the consummation of all things. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. The knowledge of his glory, the knowledge of his weightiness, of his greatness, of his power, of his might, the knowledge of that will just absolutely pervade the world as we know it. And you will be vindicated. You will be shown to have been walking in the light. You will have been shown to have been finding your identity, hiding under the shadow and the wings of the Almighty. You will be found to have been resting in the loving arms of Jesus Christ himself. So don't fear. Don't fear. Imagine how it's all going to play out in just a short, short while from now. Your life is but a vapor. And soon you will see him as he is. The third reason. The third reason is given to us. 
Verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Look, they can only kill your body. (laughs) That's the reason Jesus gives us. That's the reason Jesus gives us here. They can't ultimately destroy you. Don't be afraid. They can't, they can't tear from you. They can't take from you. They can't rip from you the most important and crucial and vital aspects of who you are. The worst that they can do to you, Jesus is giving us the worst case scenario. The worst they can do to you is kill your body. But they can't take from you, they can't take from you hope. They can't take from you identity. They can't take, take from you life with God. They can't take inner peace from you. They can't take the love of the Father from you. They can't even take your destiny from you. They can't take what God has already orchestrated and planned and ordained for your good. They can't do any of that. They can't do any of that to you. Your life is hid with Christ in God. And the worst somebody can do for you is destroy your body. And Jesus is saying, who cares? Because the most important aspects of who you are, your hope, your identity, your life, your significance, your security, your comfort, your control, is yours by faith. And no one, nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing in all creation, not even yourself. You can't separate yourself from the love of God that's in all, from from the love of God that's, yeah, you know what I'm saying. Got a little ahead of myself there. Which leads us into our, Next point, the fourth reason, is because there is one to be feared. There is one to be feared. There is one to be revered. I was reading in my, uh, there's a set of, uh, it's, it's by A.T. Robertson, who was, a, who was a Greek scholar in the 19th century, and he wrote a huge grammar, but he also wrote word pictures in the New Testament. And you can go to different passages, and he kind of elucidates what these different images are. And I looked at our text this morning, and he's writing in the 1800s. And he wrote about this text right here, about fearing the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And he said this, he says, there's no greater need in the church today than to recapture an awe and fear of, the holy, of a holy God. And I think the absolute... <laughs> That's exactly and absolutely true today. That there is a fear, there is a, 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 a reverence, there is a, an awe that comes at looking and meditating on who this great God actually is. Because there is one that can destroy your soul. There is one who can cast your soul into hell for all eternity. But to revere this God to sense the weightiness of who he is, is a strong tower of strength for us. Proverbs tells us repeatedly that the name of the Lord is a strong tower. At the fear of the Lord, in the fear of the Lord, Proverbs 14, 26, in the fear of the Lord, there is a strong confidence and his children will have refuge. There's a sense in which we look at the weightiness, the awesomeness, the holiness, the altogether otherness of God, and we ought fear him. We ought shake and tremble at his power, at his might, and at his majesty, and simultaneously, we ought find great hope and confidence and strength in it, because we are underneath it. We are under his shadow of his wings. 
We are found in him. And all that power, the omnipotent power of the sovereign God is absolutely for and directed towards his people. So fear not. Fear not, rather fear him. Look to him, revere him, honor him. Be enthralled by him. A fragile faith, this is a quote from a commentator, fragile faith is bolstered when we meditate on the truly great one. Fragile faith is bolstered when we meditate on the truly great one. Where we can be like David was when he stood in front of that Philistine Goliath. And he says in 1 Samuel 17, 26, he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There is a hope, there is a confidence that David has in the fear and reverence and awe of the Lord that causes him to not even fear this Goliath of a man that's standing in front of him. That's the fourth reason. And the fifth reason, which I bank my life on every single day, I don't think I could get out of bed without the truth and the reality of this verse. I don't know how I would survive without Romans 8.28 and without Matthew 10.30. And the truth is this, that God is an absolute, all-governing God. Jesus tells us that even the hairs on our heads are all numbered. Every single one. He gives to us this illustration of the sparrow. A sparrow is, 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 the, is the cheapest of all sacrifices. It's... it's I don't know what year the, com- year the commentator, commentary I read was. I just realized that. But it said that, that the equivalent of the sparrows would have costed about a penny. They were used as a sacrifice. And it says, not even one of them falls apart from the will of your heavenly father. Imagine that. That there are birds that live in the grand expanse of Siberia where there hasn't been a human being for years and years and years. And there's a little bird that's going to fall out of a tree and die. And it is absolutely under the sovereign, meticulous providence of God. And Jesus says, you are of more value than sparrows. Of course we are. He made us in his image with the pinnacle of his creation. Jesus is walking on this earth in this text and he's marching to the cross so that he might suffer and die for our sake so that he could bring us back to the Father. And he tells us, don't be afraid. Because every last thing that happens in your life is not outside the control of a sovereign and loving God. Every pain, 
every setback, every heartache is working together for your good. I don't know what I would do without that. How, do you, how else do you deal with the setbacks in life apart from the reality of this verse? You can either look at a God like this and curse him and die because he has the ability to control things and he's not all loving and he doesn't have his, he's, he's not for you. Or you, can, or you can look at him and say, well, this, this just can't be true. He's not all powerful because if he was all powerful, he would do X, Y, and Z. But this verse is telling us that he is all loving. He is all knowing. He knows every single last fiber of hair on your head. And he is all powerful. Therefore, the only reasonable thing to do is to throw yourself at him and trust him. Do you believe that? It's so hard to believe. It's so hard to believe that even the trials of our life, the relational shortcomings of your life, the things where people have wronged you, people have hurt you, he's working it together for your good. It's probably the greatest truth of the entire Christian faith. Piper says this, the suffering that we undergo is not because God is disinterested in us or unfamiliar with our plight. He is close enough to separate one hair from another and give each one a number. Fear not, he is close, he is interested, and he cares. That language of hair is the language of intimacy. He's talking about an intimate detail about us. He could have said anything, but he says, I know every last fiber of hair on your head. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Nothing can happen to you apart from his gracious will. You're of more value than sparrows. Not one of you, them will even fall to the ground without your father's will. And so here is the courage-giving conclusion. No harm will befall you but what God mercifully wills. No harm will befall you save that what God himself mercifully wills. One young missionary, Henry Martin, said this. He said, if God has work for me to do, I cannot die. If God has work for me to do, I cannot die. All governing providence, a pervasive providence over even the most minuscule of details. And that's the, third, that's the second point. The fears in our lives. He gives us five reasons to not fear. And the fifth of which, to me, is the Mount Everest of reasons. Let me close with point three, devotion. The kind of radical devotion that Jesus is calling us to. He tells us, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Luke is even more radical. In Luke chapter 14, he says, if someone doesn't hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. Jesus 
is calling for absolute and radical devotion here, isn't he? And he uses this language of cross. <laughs> he says, take up your cross. I mean, I don't think Matthew says it here. No, I think it's Luke where it says, take up your cross daily. Every single day, take up your cross and follow me. And you, you know the cross is a picture of shame. It was a shameful, awful, horrific kind of death and torture in the ancient world. But the act that was probably maybe even more shameful was that, that, that the convicted, that the accused had to carry their own cross before the crucifixion. They had to carry it on their shoulder. They had to walk through the jeering crowds. They had to, they had to endure the humiliation of it before actually getting to the place of the actual crucifixion where they would be nailed to the cross and die. And Jesus is saying, I want you every single day to take up that mantle, that mantle of devotion to me, that willingness to endure that kind of shame for my sake, to proclaim it from the rooftops, to speak it in the light. And then he gives to us, He gives to us the most radical of reasons. Whoever loses his, finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That word life there is, is the word where we get um, like, uh, like uh, psychology or, or mental health or that's not the right word I'm looking for. It's, 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 the, it's the seat and place of identity. It's the seat and place of identity. And there are a multitude of ways in which we find our life. We find our identity. We find it in the way we look. So we dress a certain way. We find it in how much money we make. We find our identity in that. We find our life in that. We find it in the kinds of people that we know. And the relational circles that we, 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 we walk in, we find it in, in, our, in what we know. We find it in our knowledge and in our, in our, in how smart we are and the way that we can articulate something and the way that we can speak. We find it in a certain kind of sexual prowess that people like us, people are attracted to us. And Jesus says something absolutely radical here. He says, whoever finds his life... In all of these things, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. Find your life in those things and you absolutely will lose it. You're putting stock in things that were never intended to give you that kind of identity. Were never intended to give you that kind of hope. Your looks, your knowledge, your money never died for you but you will die for it a thousand deaths. Serving it and serving it and serving it in the hopes that it will finally give you that life that you search for and long for. But Jesus is saying that whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find it. Whoever ceases to look 
and find their identity in all these things, the radical range of human emotions, the range of the ways that we find our hope, the way that people think about us, the way that the fear of man, the fear of the future, all these things that we wrap our identity and our life up in, whoever can finally learn to begin to repent of that, to turn from that, I'm not going to find my hope and my identity in that anymore. I'm going to find my life, my identity, my security, my comfort, my satisfaction in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus himself. Because he gives it to me freely. He gives it to me by his, his merciful grace. He gives it to me because he simply loves me. And all I have to do is to cling to it by faith. I cling to it by faith and he gives me new life. He gives me life that this world could never offer me. And so I lose my life. I lose my life and I find it in him. I find it in him in the radical, free grace that he offers us. And that gives us a new freedom. It gives us a new freedom to walk. It casts out fear. And it's the kind of life that Jesus was talking about. The life and life abundantly. So as we come now to the Lord's table, we're going to pause here in a moment. And let's just, let's just, let's just pray for the faith and for the help to repent of that life, the ways in which we find our identity and things outside of the gospel. Let us ask for fresh faith, fresh courage to just cling on to that promise of life that Jesus offers us by faith, to believe it again, to believe it afresh. Father, we ask for your help now. As we reflect, we pray that your spirit would be moving in us as we consider the teaching of this text. We ask for your help in Jesus' name, amen. Let's just be silent for a moment. Amen.